Good morning and welcome to this episode of Chet Chats. I have the pleasure of being with my good friend, Pastor Stephen. How are you doing today, Stephen? I am fantastic, Chet. It's good. a pleasure to be with you today. Hey, thanks so much. So today we're going to talk about a topic, and that topic is the spiritualization or justific- moral justification of our character flaws. And so... Stephen, what got me thinking about this, uh, the other day I heard a quote, and I thought it was really interesting. I had never really heard this before, and that is, patience in excess is cowardice. Hmm. And, you know, I'll let the viewers kind of chew on that for a second, but it, it, it almost sounds counterintuitive. I mean, obviously, patience is something, patience is a virtue. I mean, we hear that, um, but the idea of patience in excess, and I think the key word is excess, um, is cowardice. What, when you hear that, uh, what's your initial thought about that? Well, it's true. That's my first thought. Okay. Um, but it also is really a description, even could be, could, could be considered a manifestation of an even greater truth. And that's that uh, we as human beings, considering Psalm 139, that we are knit together in our mother's wombs, that each of us have been created individually, specifically, uniquely by our creator, that would mean then that we possess specific gifts. We possess specific and individualized personality traits, characters. But that also is countered by flaws, by failures, by mistakes that we will commit. And we have a certain propensity. I have a propensity to, um, to be really more driven based on um, based on a personality that I've been given. Others may have a propensity to be more lazy because of a laid-back personality. However, we know that some of those can be great qualities. They can also be great flaws. Um, and with that said, not only do we have specific personalities in our genetic wiring and how God's wired us and created us, we have spiritual gifts. And when you take a set of spiritual gifts as well as a personality and you meld those together, then what we see is great potential for success and great potential for failure. So just like you said, patience to an excess is cowardice. Uh, Drivenness to excess could be considered bulldozing. Uh, Leadership to excess could be considered dictatorial. Um, Mercy to excess could be considered too much tolerance. Mm. Uh, We could go on and on and on and talk about every quality having um, uh, a negative effect based on um, really ex- overextending that quality. Yeah, no, that's good. And I, I feel like a lot of times people sort of camp out in one of these virtues. And, you know, like you said, mercy, you know, everything's about mercy, everything's about mercy. Mm-hmm. And there there can never be any correction or rebuking lest you offend the gods of mercy, you know, like, and then on the other hand, you have certain people that are all about judgment, judgment, judgment. God is righteous. God, God can't be in the, uh, you know, in the presence of, of evils, you know, and then they miss the concept of mercy. Um, and it just seems like, and you've talked about this a lot, being emotionally intelligent. Would you say that, and I mean, this is just my thought, but I'd love to hear, you know, your thought on this. It almost seems like people that are less emotionally intelligent might run afoul of this more often because they don't recognize maybe the deep seated motivation in their heart or, you know, their own motivations deep down. Yeah, I I think that you're exactly right. But that also sheds light on another very important factor. And that's how valuable and important it is for us to know ourselves. Hmm. 
Uh, God's wired us a certain way, and we learn a lot about ourselves when we read Scripture because it really is reflective. When I read Scripture, I see what God intends for me, and then I reflect back on those different things in my life, and it helps me really have some some healthy insight. And I'll give you, for instance, um, I personally use an assessment here at the Orchard Church. We use an assessment tool um, by a good friend of mine. His name is Jay McSwain. But it's called Place, and and this isn't really a plug for a place, but I believe in it this much that we take those personality uh, a personality assessment, we just use a disc profile really, um, as well as uh, the the spiritual gifts and then our abilities. We also compile passions, the felt passions that we have in our lives, as well as negative and positive experiences in our lives. We take that and we really encompass it, and then through that reflective study of self then I can help identify the, the tendencies I have to camp out in certain areas. Mm. Like, and I'll, I'll use myself as an example because I know myself probably better than sure. anybody who would be listening. Um, and I, I, I don't want to make any proclamations or declarations over anyone else's life. But uh, through, through such an assessment, I've realized that uh, leadership is one of my spiritual gifts, but it's also how I'm driven, uh, my personality. And so when I look at those different uh, focuses that I have in spiritual gifts and how they're manifest in my life. Uh, leadership, teaching are very important for me. One of the things that is low on the spiritual gift manifestation in my life is mercy. Mm. So you know what that means? That means that I have to compensate. It doesn't mean I have an excuse. And a lot of times I think that's where we're going here today, right, Chet? Right. Is instead of going, oh, well, my spiritual, I'm not high in mercy. And so I justify being a jerk. You know, uh, yeah. we can't we can't do that. Matter of fact, that assessment is not for justification purposes. It is for teaching and coaching purposes. So because I know that I'm, I have a tendency to lean and be driven toward leadership and teaching in my life, that means I have to pour my heart and soul into the spirit with the spirit, the Holy Spirit saying, Lord, help me to extend and show mercy, because when I am weak, then I'm strong. That's what scripture teaches us. What does that mean? In my weakness, I need him to show up. Well, my weakness is mercy, so I need him to show up. Well, it sounds like from a, like just a pop culture standpoint, these phrases that a lot of people have adopted of, I'm just keeping it 100. I'm just keeping it real. Or that's just who I am. People have to accept me. And to a certain extent, that's that's true. But like, you know, we, we see the the memes and the cartoons and the, you know, quotes where it's like, you know what, you're not just keeping it real, you're rude. You're, you're, you're a, you know, you're being a mean person. And it, it almost, I think that kind of tracks with what you're saying of these people that will justify their behavior and how it affects other people by being, well, that's just how I'm wired. Mm -hmm. So maybe the answer is, well, maybe you should work on that. You know, maybe that's something that could use a little bit of improvement in your life. Um, so, and then, um, you know, and, and there's a, there's so many examples of this. I mean, you know, in preparing for today, I was thinking about, you know, the examples of people that, um, you know, will cite the verse of, you know, turn the other cheek. And, you know, Jesus talks about peacefulness. And they'll take that to an extreme uh, to justify complete and absolute Christian pacifism. And, and you know, I think some people, you know, maybe, you know, as we're men, so maybe, you know, talking about this from the male point of view, maybe there are some men that genuinely struggle with fear and cowardice and, and are absolutely terrified of the concept of ever being in a physical altercation. 
and maybe they know deep down that, okay, well, if someone tries to hurt my family while we're out, it's my role to intervene. But in order to compensate for that sense of fear and, you know, insecurity, they, you know, assert this idea that, well, we as Christians should be pacifists and we as Christians should never raise uh, an arm or, or anything to hurt anybody. Um, you know, and then, so, yeah, I mean, well, what do you think about that? I think that most certainly there uh, there are some individualized uh, situations. It's very situational sure. is, the, is the word I'm looking for here. It's very situational. You know, there are times when um, when it's appropriate to have some sort of confrontation. Uh, and that's really what we're looking at here is so many Christians are avoiding confrontation. Mm. And, and I think, I, I, I say I think, I 100% believe that people— in the Christian faith, avoid confrontation because they're not knowledgeable. Uh, so they lack the intellect, they lack the experience, they lack the ability to articulate a well-thought-out argument or confrontation to respond to a, um, a what we would consider a progressive agenda mm -hmm. uh, in our culture and our society. And, and this really becomes even a, a greater matter of the thermostat and thermometer uh, challenge that we have. So what does that mean? Well, this is what it means. It means that I, in my life, am either going to be characterized as a thermostat or a thermometer. And if you go into uh, the the thermo go to the thermostat in your house and you start punching buttons, hopefully, whenever you raise the temperature, you lower the temperature, something happens in your house. The temperature raises or the temperature lowers, right? Right. The thermostat is affecting change, whereas a thermometer just reads what's going on. A thermometer adjusts to what the environment is. And so without trying to glorify the metaphor, right, we just sure. get to the point. The point here is that I am either going to adjust to society around me or I am going to be an influencer on society around me. And as a Christ follower, I have a responsibility to influence the society around me, the culture in which I live. Now, obviously, I've already kind of let the cat out of the bag. Sure. I have a leader personality and so that's going to be a little easier for me to assert myself that way. But it's still an equal responsibility that all Christ followers share through the, I'm sitting here patting my Bible, through, yeah. through, the, through, the, uh, through the Word of God. And, and so when we finally recognize and own that responsibility that we have, then we no longer are able to passively resign ourselves from executing that responsibility in our lives. Makes do, sense. Do, do you see, does that make sense? <clears throat> Absolutely. Um, I, I think also another thing that we talk about here and can start to get into, you're the host, so stop me if you want to No, no, in, go but, ahead, go ahead. But is this idea of contextualization. Um, oftentimes we justify our character flaws, our sins, and especially perpetual habits through contextualizing something. Mm. And we get into a situation in, in our lives that may be a result of our, our doing, but it could be a generational issue. It could be something that we experienced gro growing up that caused us to normalize a bad behavior or a bad attitude or the manifestation of that attitude. And so we justify it by saying, well, my mom did it, my dad did it, and so I'm just that way. Yeah. Uh, matter of fact, you may have heard people say that. I've heard people say this, well, I have a temper, but I get it from my daddy. Yeah, and you're really making light of that, almost like, almost like the fact that we are inherently sinful should somehow justify sin. Exactly. You know, and and, and so what I was I'm going to ask you to kind of 
to dovetail into that. This I know. I mean, just being self-reflective and transparent, something that I struggle with. I've always struggled with it. I continue to struggle with it to this day is when I am dealing and wrestling with with sin in my life, I f- feel that thought creep in sometimes that says, well, I'm I'm human. I'm not God. I'm not Jesus. I'm I'm a f- I'm a human fleshly person. God made me this way. God, you know, created me with these certain tendencies or these certain thoughts or propensities towards this thought. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, how do we reconcile the to a certain extent truthfulness of that statement, but completely reject the idea that that should in any way, shape, or form absolve us? I guess what I'm saying is, I'll rephrase it as, how do we not completely just self-condemn ourselves and loathe ourselves and recognize that, yes, we're going to continue to struggle while at the same time not letting it creep into the point where it becomes a justification? Oh, man, that's a, that's a great question. And I don't know that I've ever had anyone uh, really pose it that way. Um, and and so it's it, it comes back to me to the difference between justification and sanctification. You know, and I'll start by... I said that, but let me really begin that presentation by asking you a question. That question sure. is, what do you do for a living? I'm an attorney. You're an attorney. Yes, sir. So when you go into the court of law, um, oftentimes when you present evidence, you would present evidence uh, as a body, right? Sure. But in doing that, you're also responsible to pr- present evidence as various exhibits. Yep. Right? So individually, each each uh, each contribution to the court has got to stand alone as uh, really legitimate legal evidence Absolutely. Absolutely. Right upon entry. Uh, so it has to be obtained legally, it has to be presented legally, and it has to be accepted legally. Absolutely. Well, when we go into our own personal lives, I want to take that metaphor and apply it to our own personal lives. Oftentimes we bring in the whole body of, of evidence to, to our reflection and we say, Oh, well, my mom was this way, or my dad was this way, and I experienced this in my life, and my teacher treated me like this, and I'm having a bad day, and our, our, um, my, my work is not pleasant, and my family life's a wreck. And so we have this entire body of evidence, and we are presenting it, and the court's going, which would be Jesus, yep. right, as the perfect judge. He's the perfect, he's the lion and the lamb, but he's the perfect judge, and he's going, wait a second, let's break all this out into different exhibits, and let's examine the evidence. And it starts with this. I am the son of God. I died on the cross for your sins and I love you. And if we can just stop there, we can, we can then address this justification and sanctification issue. So in other words, what we do is we allow the weight of evidence to overwhelm us and to a point where we're paralyzed Yeah, and we justify the sin. I hope that makes sense. Yeah. But what the next thing, what we do is we recognize that, okay, if I have this sin in my life, I recognize that I'm still struggling with this sin. I believe I've accepted Jesus as the Savior of the world and as my own Savior, and I'm pursuing Him in a relationship, but I still can't seem to just defeat this, this thing that's in my life or this attitude that's in my life, or I can't get past this experience I've had in my life. What we are responsible to do is first recognize that His death on the cross was enough. Mm-hmm. And that's called justification. So... I am justified before God because of Jesus, and now I have the Holy Spirit inside of me. And then that's when we start to discuss and really evaluate sanctification. Well, I'm justified. I'm saved in an instant, but I'm sanctified through the course of my life. This is where we're really starting to put meat on the bones to the question that you asked. 
And sanctification comes through all sorts of avenues and, and paths in our lives. So I am sanctified through, I'm give you some for instances. I'm sanctified through reading this word. Um, Chet, you know, and you listen to a lot of my teaching on Sunday mornings, and I always go back to the authority of God's word. Absolutely. But it's not just the authority of God's word. It's the ability of God's word to reveal that darkness and that um, the, the things that we don't like inside of us so that we can then have a little bit of spiritual surgery. We can cut it out. Yeah. Um, I look at God's word. You know, so sitting under godly uh, teaching that really does uh, refer back to and reflect on the authority of Scripture. Then you look at having positive relationships of accountability in your life. You know, Hopefully there would be someone in every listener's life who is pursuing Jesus, and that as they pursue Jesus, they're able to speak life into you, and you have a close enough relationship with that person that they're willing to say the hard things to you in your life. Yeah. And so, you know, accountability. We were never created. There's no Lone Ranger Christian. We were never right. created to do life alone. Um, and so if you don't have that person in your life, listener, if you're if you're sitting here today and you're going, that that's me, I don't really have anybody speaking into my life, That's that's big. Go find someone. And listen, don't wait for them to come to you. Go assert yourself. Ask someone that you respect that is pursuing Jesus, that has the fruit of the Spirit in their lives. Ask them to speak to speak into your life, even the hard things. That's number two. Number three is prayer. Prayer. Look, prayer is unnatural. Prayer is unnatural. Yeah. Faith is actually unnatural. Doubt is natural. Fear is natural. Justification is natural. I want to talk about blame in just a minute. Okay. But all these things are... Are, are natural for us. Prayer is not natural. Why? Because we're speaking to someone that we can't see. We can see evidence of his creation, sure, but we can't see him personally. Like I'm sitting here looking at you. Um, you know, it, prayer is unnatural. So we have to discipline ourselves to pray. Now you say, well, I'll discipline myself to pray, but Stephen, I don't know how to pray. Well, okay, great. Go be around people that pray. Mm. Go be around people that pray. One of the greatest ways to learn to pray is to put yourself around people who pray. And to humble yourself and say, I'm learning how to pray. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not going to go there yet. I just, yeah. I, I just want to be around you. Um, because prayer is not defined as flowery language. Prayer is defined as bearing your heart before the Holy Spirit and then allowing him to bear his heart to you. That's yeah. prayer. That's what prayer is. So long answer, but justification and sanctification, knowing that I am justified in an instant, my sin has been paid for, but I am willing to fight the fight of sanctification in my life and trust in the Holy Spirit that eventually the battle over the sin in my life, the attitude in my life, the experience in my life will be overcome because of Jesus and who he is in me. So your, your explanation starts off with the premise that the person is saved. What I want to ask is I imagine there's probably some listeners out there who are struggling or have struggled with doubting their own salvation because they continue to chronically deal with sin. And that there is a school of thought that if you're truly saved, you know, the Holy Spirit, this Holy Spirit will be in you. And if the Holy Spirit's in you, you will embody certain virtues. You will, you know, have the, the certain fruits of the Spirit. And, you know, this certain pervasive sin cannot live in your life. Uh, there's a certain, you know, heard that school of thought from various places. I don't know if that's holy true, untrue, or if there's shreds of truth in that. Um, but what would you say to someone who maybe today is sitting there saying, you know, I've accepted Jesus. I, 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 you know, 
believe in his resurrection. I, I accept him as my Lord and Savior. But I, looking back over the course of the months or years of my life, I, I just seem to continue to have this certain sin or this certain, you know, malignancy, if you will. How can I be sure of my salvation? So, number one, taking God's word for, for what it says. Yeah. Um, God's word says that if you confess your sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It doesn't say some. It doesn't say all of the past. It says all. So that's past sin, present sin, current sin, future sin. He's going to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But it's a contingency. I mean, mm -hmm. it says it. I mean, it, there is a contingency. If I confess my sin, which means that I've got to be willing to admit my stance before God, and that's that I'm a sinner, which means I accept the fact that the wages of sin, the price of sin, the consequence of sin. I was just talking to my six-year-old about this last night. Yeah. The consequence of sin is death. Well, what is death? It's separation from God. So when I believe God's word for what it says, that means I have to faith in, and I've talked about this before, faith is really a verb. Mm -hmm. It's not so much a descriptor as it is an action. I faith in God's word. I believe in, I put my whole weight on, I trust in God's word, and I say, I know for a fact that I've been justified because I've given my life over to Jesus. So that goes into, well, what what about the fact that I continue to sin? You still haven't answered that part of the question. Well, there are certainly some denominational sects that, that is S-E-C-T-S. Right. But, um, but some some sects of, of, of Christianity who would teach that once you give your life to Jesus, accept Jesus into your heart, you are born again, whatever, however you want to word that, that you are saved uh, from your sin, that you would never sin again. Um, I personally disagree with that doctrinal teaching. I don't see it represented in Scripture. As a matter of fact, I continue to see Paul address the church at Corinth, and, and I, I see Paul address the church at Ephesus, and I see Peter address the five provinces in Rome, as, I, as well as actually address Rome, uh, Paul addressed Rome, and and then he Paul coaches his young understudy Timothy in two letters, and I could go on and on and through the New Testament, and all of these authors share a common theme, and that is continue to pursue Him and His grace because you need it. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. And so uh, there there are some some sin there there is the propensity for us to continue sinning in our life, which goes to show the need for us to continue to press into the person of the Holy Spirit. Now, I do personally believe there will be a progressive growth for the Christ follower. Mm. If someone truly is a Christ follower, there's going to be progressive growth in our lives. doesn't mean there won't be setbacks. doesn't mean we won't slip up. It doesn't mean we won't mess up. And it doesn't mean that we are immune to or vaccinated from yeah. um, having, having uh, some sort of habitual sin sneak into our lives. I've, I've known men who... Um, who ended up men and women both who fall and pray to pornography or alcoholism, even sure. after they gave their lives to Christ, the fruit in their lives would suggest that they are Christ followers. But this habitual sin uh, crept into their life really by their own choices. And they've sought to remedy that in certain ways. Now, um, again, this comes into a lot of contextualization, individualization, and how God deals with his children specifically and individually but uh, it is entirely possible and it's probable that and, and 
well, it's even sure that we're going to continue to sin after sure. we're born again. And when we press into him, hopefully the volume of Christ-centered living and self-centered living uh, go, goes up, that I, I pursue Christ more in my life as a born-again Christian than I do myself, and that we continue to see that ratio expand greatly over the course of our salvation experience. That's good. That's a good explanation. I I know that I find it somewhat uh, reassuring when you read the Bible and you see how deeply flawed some of Jesus' disciples were, you know, and that yeah. he, he used them and that, you know, because I just, I know I'm a deeply flawed person and uh, sometimes I see flaws in the disciples that I can identify with. And it's kind of like, you know, very reassuring to see, man, if Jesus can use, you know, Peter and Paul and these these guys and, you know, I forget if it was Peter, but the guy who picked up the sword and went and cut That's off the Peter. soldier's ear, yeah. uh, you know, out of this uh, almost, you know, sense of wanting to protect his his dearly beloved friend Jesus, you know, but Jesus rebuked him for that and maybe he was acting out of temper or rage or whatever and it's like, man, I can really identify with that. You know, it's like that's something that I can see in myself. Um, but it's just so cool and reassuring to know that God can use those men and we see them in the scripture. So, um, yeah, I just I think that's really reassuring to read that but, in there. Let me speak to that. You know, I've said this uh, from from the teaching platform before and this isn't original to me um, and, and I've I uh, heard my dad say this to, to me over the years as, as, as a spiritual influence on my life, and I'm sure he heard it somewhere else, but God uses crooked sticks to draw straight lines. Yeah. And and so that means he uses broken people to accomplish things in his life. It doesn't mean he's a puppeteer right? Uh, treating us as pawns, moving us on a chessboard or some sort of, uh, some sort of robotic um, imagery that he would be using to accomplish his purpose through us. No, it's, it's as we submit ourselves to him, we are allowing him to use us. Uh, and, and that is the gift that he's given us, is, is individual free will. But I also know that um, the reason that you see so many of these men and women, both, men and women both, okay, really be used by God is because they knew how to repent. Mm. They yeah. knew how to repent. And we don't talk about repentance a lot. Because repentance is painful. Repentance requires reflection. It requires to a playback in our mind of, of, of sin, of pain, of darkness, of hurt. And repentance is absolutely necessary for salvation. Without repentance, there's no forgiveness of sin. Yeah. Um, now, the price has been paid by Christ on the cross, but there's no individual. I, have, I can't own that forgiveness until I repent of my sin. And you look at David. Uh, and I'll be speaking on that this Sunday, but you look at, at David and, and King David from the Bible, one of the greatest kings of all, he, he knew how to repent. He said, he said, search me, O God, and know me. Know if there's any wicked way inside of me. And so he was willing to bear all, bear all, open up, be transparent, be vulnerable before the Lord and say, reveal these things inside of me. Tell me that which I don't even already know about myself so that I can be right before you. And David was a murderer. He was yeah. an adulterer. You know, he was, he, there was a lot of wickedness in his life, but God used him. God even defined him as a man after his own heart. Hmm. Wow. Why? Because he knew how to repent. And so I really believe that a lot of the conversation that we're having today would be mitigated if we would just be willing to repent. For sure. <laughs> For sure. Willing to lay it all before the Lord. Um, and if I can, I, I'll, I'll transition into this, this other 
issue that we all face when it comes to justifying character flaws. Yes, please. Um, and that is blame. Mm. Blame. We have a tendency to blame. In the culture we're in, it's at all, it, it, it would seem that it's at an all-time high. It's not. It's just really showing itself yeah. uh, probably as much as ever before. But you can go all the way back to Genesis chapter 3 and see where the very first sin occurred. And God had put Adam and Eve in the garden, gave them a tree of life, and gave them the, um, the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And they were told not to, uh, they were told not to, to eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. The serpent came to Eve and spoke with Eve and told her, convinced her yeah. to take a bite. So as the story goes, they are hiding in the garden because now they know of evil. They have walked into evil. And we don't know whether they liked it or not, but we know they were afraid. Yeah. They were afraid. And, and God said, where are you? He came to walk with them in the garden that evening and said, where are you? And it says that they were afraid and they were hiding. And then he asked man, he asked Adam where, where they were. And Adam responded, and this is going to be my paraphrase, but they responded with, we're hiding because we're naked. And he said, who's told you you were naked? Interesting. Who's told you you were naked? Well, that's that's profound. Yeah. Because how did they know they were naked? It's because they encountered and engaged the evil. And they were hiding in the garden. And then he said, well, who told you that? And instead of rightfully identifying the cause of the evil, Adam's response was, that woman that you put here. <laughs> that woman. Blame. Misplaced blame see Adam didn't own it and say I messed up God I messed up I did this he didn't say the serpent came and deceived us he said that woman that you came she gave me this fruit that, or that you sent to me she sent this and ate it matter of fact he wasn't even blaming Eve as much as he was blaming God the woman you gave me yeah that's a you good see point it? Yeah. and so what happens in our lives is so many times we misplace blame yeah. Maybe we don't blame God for the the character flaw. We don't blame God for the sin. We don't blame God for the hurt. We don't blame God for the experience. Sometimes we do. Sometimes we do, especially if it's great loss in our lives and we don't know who else to blame. We, we blame yeah. God. But we misplace blame. And what we've got to recognize, what is absolutely necessary, if we're going to get this right in our yeah. lives, this challenge of, of dealing with these character flaws, is realizing that God has an incredible purpose for us, which he says in his word that he's, he's knit us together in our mother's womb, which would indicate that he has implicate that he has created us for a purpose. He wants to use us for that purpose and sin is in the way of that. So let's blame sin yeah. as sin and let's thank Jesus for the justification before God. And then let's move away from sin and toward Jesus. Yeah. It's real elementary but goodness, is it challenging? Well, if I if I can just piggyback off that uh, and give a an, an analogy, a parallel uh, in the secular world, uh, the legal community specifically, we see this idea a lot in sentencing hearings when people offer mitigation evidence. Um, you know, a lot of times you'll hear a defense attorney, you know, so their client's been convicted of, of rape or murder or some kind of serious heinous offense. And then they want to tell their client's story and say, well, you know, 
he has this underlying mental condition, or this was what his childhood was like, and this is, you know, this uh, act was done to him as a child or her to as a child, and kind of develop this psychological, sociological roadmap for how we got here today. And the thing that I've argued before in court is explanation is not the same as a justification. So you might explain how we got here, and that's great. That's great that you know, the reason this person did this heinous act was because all these things lined up from a psychological standpoint and a sociological standpoint, and he lost his job over here, and then that led him to be that's in this great place. That's a case study. Yeah, yeah, that's a, that's a great example. That, is, that explains how we got here. But just because you, as a defense attorney, can explain how we got here does not mitigate the culpability of your client. It doesn't, it doesn't remove the criminal element. It doesn't remove the fact that there was a point in time where he had to pick up a gun, walk into a liquor store, put that gun up to the person's head, and rob them. That, that, that person had to commit that horrible sexual offense against that minor child that they absolutely knew was wrong, knew the age of the person. Um, you know, that doesn't change that. And so I think a lot of times, and, and I, you know, I say this just to sort of to try to take a step back into the, the spiritual realm, you know, just because we can maybe explain why we sin or explain why we're prone to sin doesn't necessarily justify it. So yeah. do you think that's an, an applicable analogy? It is. Absolutely. It's completely appropriate. I mean, we have a tendency to, uh, again, want to explain things away. And I just keep thinking as you're talking, I keep thinking... For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We're all guilty, period. Yeah. Just stop there. Yeah. That's enough. <laughs> you know? Yeah, there's all kinds of reasons, and I think it's probably healthy in different stages and periods in our lives to reflect on that causation. What has caused us to get to this point? Why have we done it? So that we can avoid repeating the past. Absolutely. But instead, um, we try to use that, like you're saying, as justification. And even to try to, and I think probably what happens in the court of law, uh, from my experience in the court as, a, as an interpreter in, in a previous life, yeah. um, but but being in court, oftentimes I would see that, and it was really an attempt to minimize the the sentencing or the punishment. Yeah. It's like, well, because of this, maybe they shouldn't deserve 20 years, maybe it's 19. And then because of this, maybe it should be 18. And because of the, it's almost like yeah. we're trying to water down the punishment. But again, the word says the wages of sin is what? Death. Yeah. So one sin equal death, all sin equal death, every sin equals death. And so we would also be amiss not to finish that verse, that the gift of God is eternal life Amen. through Jesus Christ. And that's the good news of salvation. That's the greatest news that any of us can receive is knowing that his grace is enough through the sacrifice that he paid on the cross. Not just that, is he's not dead still in a grave somewhere but he's resurrected. He's alive, sitting at the right hand of the Father. And one day, uh, he's going to come back and get his bride. and Or we're going to go meet him. Right. I'm going to go meet him. Um, and I hope that all of our listeners would be so bold. Look, some people think Christianity is weakness. I think it, I think it, 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 it proves great strength. Well, done right, it requires strength. It does. You know? so. It does. It, it's, it's so important for us. And, and I, I would pray that our listeners, your listeners, would be able to, to muster that strength to faith in the person of Jesus and know that um, the hope that, that we have, the hope that we as Christ followers have, that I have as a Christ follower, is unmatched. 
it's unmatched. There's no government that can give me this hope. There's no money that can give me this hope. Right. There's no feeling that can give me this hope. There's no drug, no substance. There's no material possession that can give me this hope. There's no relationship outside of that of Jesus Christ that can give me this hope except him. And so I, if you don't know Jesus, um, I didn't ask you if I could do this yet. No, please, if please, if always. If you don't know Jesus, I want to invite you into that relationship with him. Um, I can't I can't save you, but I can introduce you to the one who saves. And and his name is Jesus. And so um, I, don't, I don't know if you, on your on your post or something you can give my information, but I'll tell you, you can email me at sbuys, S-B-U-Y-S, at theorchardnc.com. Uh, and you can say, I'm interested. Give me a phone number. Give me a mailing address. I'll give you some information and help walk, walk through uh, any questions you have um, as a follow-up to this podcast because I believe that it is that important. That's great. And I really hope uh, somebody out there takes advantage of that and takes Stephen up on that because I can tell you knowing him personally. Um, he's serious when he says that, and, and he will absolutely make time to talk with you. So um, I think that's a great place to wrap it up. I mean, that's honestly the most important thing that we could have possibly talked about. So that's a great place to, to end it. Uh, Pastor Stephen, thank you so much for taking time to talk with me today. I know you're, you got a lot, a lot of stuff going on here, but it's, uh, it's such an honor uh, for you to carve out some time for me. So thank you very much. Absolutely. It's a pleasure, Chet. I enjoy it. And uh, maybe we can do several more of these in the future and, and uh, just hopefully, hopefully see some fruit, some Christian Christ following fruit and the lives of, of listeners. Absolutely. Thanks so much. Yep. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to Chat Chats. Today will be a somewhat brief discussion on the issue of presidential impeachment and impeachment in general. Now, this is a big topic right now because um, former President Trump was impeached and now is proceeding to the trial portion of the proceedings in the Senate. I believe I did a podcast in the past about impeachment, so this will be a little bit of a review, but I wanted to talk about the the concept of impeachment in general and sort of address some concerns. I've, I've received several questions from family members recently saying, you know, why are they doing impeachment proceedings if he's already out of office? And the simple answer Number one is to, you know, to stain his reputation and to illegitimize his presidency, partly in a sort of um, existential manner. But the pragmatic reason is to prevent him from running for public office again. So that is one remedy they can seek in the Senate is to prevent him from running for any sort of federal public office, as well as stripping any sort of presidential privileges or benefits that he might enjoy in the future, pension, uh, travel allowance, um, security from the Secret Service, that sort of thing. So let's start off. How do you impeach someone? You impeach someone in the House with a simple majority vote, and it's for, quote, high crimes and misdemeanors. Now, what does that really mean? Um, Nobody really knows. Uh, There is not a lot if any, uh, case law precedent to rely on, this is a very political process, meaning this is not something that is administered by the courts um, that we can look to and really analyze from a legal standpoint and say, this is an impeachable offense, this is not an impeachable offense. Honestly, what it comes down to is 
if the House wants to impeach you, then it's an impeachable offense. They have great discretion in doing that. It is very much akin to uh, a grand jury proceeding where, you know, it's simply bringing formal charges. And then the Senate, the hearing in the Senate is tantamount to a trial, a determination of guilt or innocence. Now, people have said, you know, oh, this is, you know, this is illegitimate. The current impeachment proceedings are illegitimate because they did it very fast. He was not entitled to an attorney. There was not really any sort of investigation, this, that, and the other. Therefore, the impeachment is unconstitutional. Well, I don't necessarily agree with that because although a grand jury should investigate, they're not required to. A grand jury proceeding, actually, in a grand jury proceeding, a defendant is not entitled to have an attorney present, nor is the defendant entitled to be present. So you don't get an attorney during the initial charging decision. So that doesn't really make it unconstitutional in the public size, but there's always two sides of this. And, and I talk about this a lot. There's what you can do and what you should do. They can absolutely impeach you in a week without the assistance of counsel, without a uh, protracted investigation. They absolutely can. Now, if you don't, you sort of erode the legitimacy, the political legitimacy of an impeachment proceeding. And they're going to have to deal with the consequences of that, of that in the future. When you send it over to the Senate, um, the Senate's going to have to decide whether or not to um, whether or not to convict him. And I'll just say this. Basically, what impeachment and conviction after impeachment has come down to at this point is very much a political indictment. It's basically if the person being impeached um, is not liked by whoever controls both houses of Congress, they can be impeached. Now, does that make it unconstitutional? I don't believe so. There is nothing specifically in the Constitution that prohibits what the Democrats are doing with the impeachment, impeachment proceeding. So they can do this. Now, what precedent are they setting for the future? They are setting the precedent that if a person is president and the opposing or opposite party controls both the House and the Senate, and that president does anything that they don't like, they can be impeached and they can be convicted and removed from office. Because you see, the argument that the Democrats are using to support both the first impeachment of President Trump and the second impeachment of President Trump is that, hey, there are no clear guidelines for what is and is not an impeachable offense. And we've heard this argument in support of his impeachment um, from various scholars and people with opinions that basically if the House wants to impeach you, then it's an impeachable offense. They use that to justify the legitimacy. Now, keep in mind, that argument cuts both ways. When there is a Democrat in office, and if and when the Republicans control the House, guess what? Whatever the Republicans want to impeach him for or her is an impeachable offense then. So they have to realize that this argument is going to go both ways. And they can't stand up and say, well, that's this is not an impeachable offense or this is an impeachable offense. No, everyone is setting the precedent right now 
that whatever the House wants to impeach for is an impeachable offense. So you make your bed, you're going to have to sleep in it. So can they do what they're doing right now? Absolutely. But is it going to be, is it politically savvy? Now that's another question. Especially considering he's no longer in office. And to be honest, the chances of him running and winning again are, I, I think, very slim. I think the whole country is sort of, the majority of the country is sort of over Donald Trump at this point. Um, and I don't know that anybody would hitch their wagon to him in a primary at this point. I mean, just because of the risk of losing again. So is it politically savvy to to spend all this political capital on something that's really not going to have any sort of effect? I don't know. That's a, that's a question the Democrats are going to have to answer for themselves. Um, but I would say that, you know, history tends to repeat itself. And I can see five... 10, maybe 20 years down the road, a Democrat in office, Republicans controlling both houses of Congress, and that president walks on the wrong side of the hallway or sneezes without covering his nose, and they spring into action and impeach him or her. And then say, hey, just like you guys said back in 2020 and 2021, whatever the House wants to impeach for is impeachable, and you know, the Senate can convict for whatever they want. So short answer is, can they do it? Absolutely. Does this set a dangerous precedent and sort of erode the seriousness of an impeachment proceeding? I think so. I don't think it's necessarily wise for that reason, because we want impeachment to really mean something. We want it to actually carry weight to say this person was impeached and then potentially this person was convicted in the Senate. We want that to mean something. And since Donald Trump was elected, it has been a nonstop effort to impeach him. And so I believe over the last four years, we have seen a complete um, eroding of the legitimacy and the seriousness of impeachment proceedings in this country.